I'm going to read from Acts chapter 15 and just the first two verses, but I will cover pieces throughout the remainder of that chapter. Acts chapter 15, verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And today I want to preach to you for just a little bit questions about our salvation. Questions about our salvation. I'll be honest with you, I, I was thinking of as I framed my message today, I had initially framed it around the questions and made the questions the main points and then I decided that I would just make my main point statements that answer various questions. So it might be a little bit like Jeopardy today where I give you the answer and then we ask the question. But we'll see how that, how that plays out today. Many of you may have heard this story. A man was in a flood. In fact, he was stuck on his rooftop and he was praying and asking God for help. He was asking God to send someone to get him off of his roof out of the flood. Soon a man in a rowboat came by and the fellow shouted to the man on the roof, Jump in, I can save you. The stranded fellow shouted back, No, it's okay, I'm praying to God and he is going to save me. So the rowboat went on. Then a motorboat came by, and the fellow in the motorboat shouted, Jump in, I can save you. To this, the stranded man said, No thanks, I'm praying to God, and he is going to save me. I have faith. So the motorboat went on. Then a helicopter came by, and the pilot shouted down, Grab this rope, and I will lift you to safety. To this, the stranded man replied, No thanks, I'm praying to God, and he is going to save me. I have faith so the helicopter flew away and soon the water rose above the rooftop and the man drowned he went to heaven he finally got his chance to discuss the whole situation with God at which point he exclaimed I had faith in you but you didn't save me you let me drown I don't understand why to this God replied I sent you a rowboat and a motorboat and a helicopter what more did you expect now the reality is this, if someone is really drowning, they're not going to criticize the means of escape. They're not going to criticize the opportunity they have to escape the drowning and to be delivered from that drowning. And just like the story, if you're really drowning, there are all kinds of ways that people can be saved from drowning, all means of escape and all means of deliverance and ultimately all means of physical salvation. But contrary to that, when it comes to the kingdom of God, there is only one way of salvation. When it comes to the kingdom of God, there is only one way to get to heaven. The Bible tells us that that is through Jesus Christ. No other way will get you to heaven. There is no other escape from an eternity apart from God except through Jesus Christ. However, we live in a world that believes that there are many ways to heaven. We live in a world that believes that just about anything you do and just about any kind of person you are will get you to heaven. 
If you were to go on the street and ask people about their eternal destiny, if they actually believe in a heaven or hell, and you were to ask them if they were going to heaven, most people would tell you that they were, they were on their way to heaven, and when you ask them why, they will come up with all manner of reasons and all variety of reasons. And the reality is this, is that our world is moving rapidly toward universalism. And universalism means this, that anything you believe and anything you do will just get you to where you want to go. That everybody ultimately will be saved. Everybody ultimately will go to heaven just by virtue of their existence. Ecumenism, which is a mode of people within the Christian community working together to try to come together and get rid of all of their differences to say that the things that the Bible says that various denominations may hold to, none of those really matter, that all of us serve Jesus and we're just going to love him and we're all going to make it to heaven together. I probably told you this, but I, I was talking to a former pastor, oh, it's probably about two months now, and he still actually wants to meet with me. <laughs> I wasn't sure, but I, I was pushing him. And, and this work that he's doing, which is very ecumenical. And once again, that is the idea of bringing all people of all Christian denominations together for a common cause or purpose. And in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. But in another sense, ultimately what they're saying is almost nothing matters as long as you can spell Jesus. That if you know his name and you know how to spell it, at least in English, then you're all on the same team. I would tell you that's not what the Bible would say, and we'll walk through that in just a moment. But that is where our world is going. But even beyond this, our world is, is pushing for what is called interfaithism. And that means that whether you're Christian or you're Buddhist or you're Muslim or you're Hindu, it doesn't really matter. We're all worshiping the same God. That doesn't matter if you have 52 gods or 172 gods but we're all worshiping the same God, and we just have different names and different paths, but everything is all working together. If I could meddle just a little bit, I, could, I would tell you this, that that idea is what I think will be a big push of the one-world religious system that the Bible prophesies that is coming. That in the end times, there will be a one-world government and there will be a one-world religious system where everybody will have to be on board. And ultimately, what they're going to do is this, is that your God is as good as my God. It's just we have different names. And your God may act a little bit different with you, but he acts a little bit different with me, but it's no big deal. I would tell you that that is not the biblical gospel. Former President George W. Bush did an interview. And he was asked this question, do all worship the same God, Christian and Muslim? His response was, I think we do. We have different routes of getting to the Almighty, but we worship the same God. The follow-up question do Christians and non-Christians and Muslims go to heaven in your mind? He said, yes, they do. We have different routes of getting there. But basically what he's saying is this. It doesn't really matter what you believe. Everybody's going to heaven. It doesn't matter if 
the God of Christianity, that when we, when we look at Jesus Christ, that we see him as God, it doesn't matter that Muslims say he's not God. George Bush just says we're all worshiping the same God, that we all have the same path, or, or we have different paths, but we all have the same destiny. Once again, I would tell you that Jesus said, no man comes to the Father except through me. You don't get to heaven except through Jesus Christ. How does that practically play out in our lives today? As, as I would imagine that everybody in this room, you believe in Jesus. You are hopefully seeking to serve Jesus. You are seeking to follow Jesus. What does it mean then to be saved? And what does it mean to stay saved? How shall we live if we are saved? Should we be different than the world? And it is our salvation more than a conversion ex experience? Is it more than a moment of repentance? And is it more than going down in the waters of baptism? Is it more than being filled with the Spirit? How are we saved? How do I know if I am saved? Maybe the question that I've been getting at is this, is everyone even saved the same way? Acts 15, the text that I read, it will inform us of a number of different truths about our salvation and answer a number of questions about our salvation. If you remember the book of Acts, it is the story of the actions of the apostles, the actions of the early church as Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 2 and He then imparted His Spirit in that same chapter, he actually ascended in chapter 1 and, and then parted his spirit in chapter 2. We'll look at that in more detail, but these actions of the apostles. And now we get to Acts 15. The gospel has been spreading around the Gentile world. Initially, it was a Jewish religion because only Jews were preaching the gospel to Jews. And they weren't taking the gospel to anyone who wasn't a Jew. But then in Acts chapter 8, as Philip the evangelist went to Samaria and began to preach the gospel to the Samaritans, and they received the word of God with great joy and with great gladness, and they were baptized, and they were filled with the Spirit, and they became followers of Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius had a vision, of an, and an angel appears to him in a vision and tells him to go to Send men to Joppa for one Simon Peter who will tell them everything they need to do to be saved. And of course, the gospel was poured out upon Cornelius and his household. And then in Acts chapter 13, God called Paul and Barnabas to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to be missionaries to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 13 and 14, they are going and traveling around Asia Minor specifically and other parts of the, the known world and they are preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and Gentiles are coming into the kingdom. But then there arises a dispute among those who are following Jesus. It is the text that I read where it says this, some men came down from Judea. These are Jews that come down from Judea and they were teaching the people in these Gentile areas that unless they are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, they cannot be saved. So Paul and Barnabas had great argument and great discussion and debate with them. 
And they finally went to Jerusalem to answer the question. Ultimately, the question is this. What is really necessary to be saved? So from this text, I'm going to bring five truths to your attention. And the first thing is this, is that salvation begins with receiving the Holy Spirit. Salvation begins with receiving the Holy Spirit. Today we celebrate Pentecost Sunday. Let me pause here. I know none of you are deaf and you can hear that our neighbors today decided to have an event. And and depending on what you think about the music, you might want to be getting a little dance or something going on. We'll try to I'll try to control myself up here. So if it won't bother me what they're doing, it won't, hopefully uh, hopefully it won't bother you because it's not going to bother me. Everybody good? So today we celebrate Pentecost Sunday, and it is fifty days from Passover. Passover being the death of the lamb, the killing of the lamb, celebrating and remembering what took place in Egypt that first Passover, and ultimately this is what takes place, that Jesus fulfills that Passover as he is crucified on Passover. And then, 50 days later, we have the birthday of the church. It is universally seen as the birth of the church. It is the day that the Spirit of God began to be poured out on all people. It is the day that God poured out His Holy Spirit upon people. It was, as I mentioned, 50 days after Passover. And Jesus had said throughout, especially the book of John, He had said repeatedly that the promise is going to come. I'm going to send the promise of the Spirit. I'm, I'm going to send the Spirit. In fact, He would say this, I will not leave you comfortless, but I will come to you. And ultimately what he's saying is I'm going to come, I'm going to leave in this physical form, but I'm coming back in a spiritual form and I am going to be with you. He would say in John chapter 7 that the Spirit cannot come until after I am glorified. And that glorification took place in Acts chapter 1 as he ascended to heaven. But it is called Pentecost, that is the the Greek phraseology referring to the 50 days after Passover. We are a Pentecostal church. We are Pentecostal because the apostles were Pentecostal. Peter, James, and John, and Matthew, the rest of the apostles, they were Pentecostal. So we are Pentecostal because they are Pentecostal. We are Pentecostal because we believe in and experience speaking in tongues like they did in Acts chapter 2 and throughout the book of Acts. That when the Spirit of God came, they spoke in a language that they did not know. And from Acts chapter 2, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, and, and throughout the real church history, everyone who is filled with the Spirit speaks in a language that they do not know. The promise is still being fulfilled today of the outpouring of the Spirit, and I would tell you, that it still comes the same way. That Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, does not have a different methodology of filling people with His Spirit today than He did in Acts chapter 2, or Acts chapter 8, or Acts chapter 10, or Acts chapter 19. He does it the same way. So I would tell you that when you receive salvation, 
it comes with the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 15, 8 and 9 says this, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He did it the same way. That Peter is saying this, you got the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues, and he says he gave it to the Gentiles the same way. He made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. So I would tell you, how does salvation come and how do you know when you receive the Spirit? You know because you have spoken in other tongues just like the apostles. I referenced chapter 10 in the household of Cornelius other, earlier. And in the middle of Peter's preaching to Cornelius and his household and all of his close friends, some 50 or so people, that in the middle of preaching, they began, the Bible says the Holy Ghost fell on them that heard the word, and they began to speak in other tongues. And Peter and the other Jews who were with him, the Bible says they were astonished because the Spirit had been poured out on these Gentiles. They weren't really expecting it to happen, but it did, and they knew that the Spirit had come because they spoke in tongues. And Peter in Acts chapter 11, when he would go into and to Jerusalem to defend what took place at the household of Cornelius there in Caesarea, he would say that they received the Spirit just like we did. There is only one salvation, and it comes the same way. The second thing I would tell you is that salvation is validated by the supernatural. In verse 12 of chapter 15, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through and among the Gentiles. As we look at this second point about the supernatural, I would tell you that when the Spirit of God is at work, there should be real and authentic moves of His Spirit. That it should not be we come to church and we had an event, we come to church and we had a concert. If this was a concert, nobody's coming to listen to me sing. Can I get an amen? <laughs> You're not supposed to agree that readily. <laughs> nobody's coming to a concert. Nobody's coming or should be coming for a show, but we should have real and authentic moves of God's Spirit. If I could say this, and, and I don't think that she would mind, I think that she would say it as well, but Belki, who we, we have known for, I guess, three and a half years now, and about three years when she first came and visited our church. After their first Sunday here, her youngest daughter said to my wife, 
Mom said, this is our forever church. I was in September, and they continued to come. And, and I didn't fully know her background. And, but in December of 2021, filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit, evidenced by speaking in other tongues, and her response after that was, this is what I'm looking for. And I would tell you that it's not, let's have a few songs and let's get excited about songs and let's have a sermon and, or a message and get a little motivated to do something. All of that's good and that's fine, but we should have real and authentic moves of God's Spirit that the presence and power of God should be resident every time we are together. And there is no question that speaking in tongues is a part of that move of the Spirit. It is a supernatural thing, but, but what Paul and Silas or Barnabas were talking about is this, is that there were signs and wonders everywhere they went that validated what was going on in the preaching of the Word. Things that are only explainable by the power of God. Not emotionalism, not taking medicine, but real miracles. Not, not just doing things and trying to give God some credit here and there. Not crazy stuff like I, you, you can see in various charismatic movements. But real, authentic moves. God's Spirit, where miracles, signs, and wonders only explainable by the power of God take place. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go through church as usual. I don't want to go through the motions, but I want to experience the presence and power of God. Anybody else want to experience the presence and power of God where you see the miraculous I've seen tumors disappear. I've seen cancers healed. I've seen hearts healed. I've seen God do all kinds. I've seen broken bones healed. But I want to see it again. I want to see it every time we gather together and somebody has a need that God shows up and He shows out. Salvation, when you are a child of God, there should be some validation of the supernatural. The third thing I would say is this, is that salvation should result in unity. It would be God's plan that all who are called by His name would get together and that they would work together. And I talked about ecumenism earlier and interfaithism. And I painted them in a bad light. It's a pejorative kind of thing in my... And definitely interfaithism is and ecumenism is for the most part as well is because people get rid of various pieces of the Bible that anything that they don't like, this group doesn't like this, so the other group says, well, we won't make it a big deal either. And another group doesn't like something else, so we won't talk about that. But I would tell you, you don't get to decide what's a big deal and what's not a big deal. God gets to decide what's a big deal. 
You don't get to decide that you don't like what Jesus said over here or what Jesus did there or what the apostles did over here and say, well, we'll just ignore all of that and we'll just come to the least common denominator of we can all say Jesus together. There should be unity among God's people, but God's people need to have unity among the things that are important. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. That when you do indeed have the Spirit of God, that that should bind us together in unity. Paul would write in Ephesians, There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in you all. So we have some commonality when you're filled with the Spirit. We have commonality when we're baptized the same way, and we should work together. We've got all kinds of churches and all kinds of denominations. All camping out on one aspect of the Scripture. That's the reality of what they do is is that they find one thing that they like, one thing that they hold to as true. They draw a circle around that one single truth and then they exclude everything else. During our offering moment, I read from Acts chapter 20. Paul would say in Acts chapter 20, a little bit later on, six verses later in that chapter, he would say this, For I have not failed to preach to you the whole counsel of God. Not just a little sliver, not just a little piece here, not just a little piece there, but he says, I have not failed to preach to you the whole counsel of God. Salvation should result in unity. They're having a good time next door. The fourth thing that I would tell you is this. Salvation is more than conversion. Look at your neighbor and say it's more than conversion. I'll tell them like you mean it. Verse 28 and verse 29 of Acts chapter 15 says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Then when Paul and and Barnabas went to Jerusalem to talk to the church leaders and to ask them to confirm whether the Gentiles had to be circumcised or not, the answer to that question was no, they do not have to be circumcised in order to be saved. They do not have to keep the law of Moses. The law of Moses had some 640 different commands. And ultimately, 
What the leaders of the church said is this, is that if you're a Gentile, you don't have to keep 640 laws. You don't have to do all of those same things that the Jews do. Ultimately, understanding that that doesn't save you anyway. That you don't get saved by the law. But when they send back this list, it's a pretty small list. Four little things. Let me say that. Let, let me say it this way: four big things, but only four. Abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood. From what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. And if you look at that on the surface you would say, that's all you got to do? Is that really it? But understand the nuance of what is going on here. The question is not just how do you get saved and how do you know that you're saved. The question is this, how can Jews and Gentiles worship together? How can Jews and Gentiles show up at the same service and how can they be in relationship with one another? How can they both be part of the body of Christ? And so the question that they're answering is not a list of everything you've got to do to prove that you're saved. But the question that they're answering is this, how can we make sure that Jews and Gentiles can come together and not create a division before I finish answering that question I'll ask a rhetorical question or two if you look at this you would think that there's nothing else you have to do but but would you really expect God to be saying hey you can worship idols if you want to that's no big deal anymore you just can't eat meat offered to idols No one would say that. No one would say that now the, the second commandment, there shall not be any graven thing. I'll make all the idols to Jesus you want to. It's not a big deal. Well, the reality is this, that there is a basic understanding that if you're serving Jesus Christ, you're not, you're not violating the Ten Commandments. You're not lying and killing and stealing. You're not setting up idols. You're not making graven images. You're not doing any of that. You're already fulfilling the Ten Commandments. So the question is not everything you have to do, but how do they stay in fellowship? And if you are a Jew in the first century, then you're not eating meat offered to idols because you were raised thinking if you eat that meat offered to idols, it will make you ritually impure. And if you touch somebody who's eaten meat offered to idols, guess what? Now you're not pure. That if you are participating in sexual immorality, that their sin rubs off on you when you come in contact with them. And you see that actually throughout the Old Testament. So what they're really saying is this, as long as you break down these couple of barriers where you're, you're not doing those things that will make the Jews impure in their own eyes, none of that other stuff is what saves you. Do you still follow the Ten Commandments? Yes, you do. Do you still, do you still uh, remain morally pure? Yes, you do. 
But the question is, how can we work together and live together in a common unity? So I would tell you, salvation is more than conversion. It's, there are things that come along with our salvation experience that God requires of us. We live in a world that would tell you, a Christian world that would tell you this. Pray a simple prayer. Believe it when you pray it. And then nothing else you ever do the rest of your life matters. Three days later, if you decide you didn't really believe what you prayed, too late. You're going to heaven whether you want to or not. You don't serve Jesus, no big deal. In their eyes, you had a conversion experience because you said a few words and you believed them when you said them. Nothing else matters after that. I would tell you that salvation is more than conversion. It's more than having a momentary encounter with Jesus Christ. It's more than an experience. But I would tell you, you've got to have that experience and you have to have that encounter because if you don't have that, you're not really on the journey. And lastly, I would say this. Salvation is an ongoing reality, not a one-time event. I had a conversion experience. I, I got saved. Now what? Is that the extent of this walk with Jesus Christ? Is that I had an encounter with Him or what do I need to do now? Two different places in our text or in Acts chapter 15. The Bible speaks of people being strengthened. Verse 32, and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Acts 15, 41, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. For many people, they see salvation as this one-time event. I, I, could, I could point back to November 12, 1983, when at the age of 11 I was filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, evidence of speaking in other tongues for the first time. It was a Saturday night, it was a special service. I was baptized eight days later on Sunday, November 20th. That I could look at that and say, man, I was saved, end of story. 
But there is a continuum or a process or maybe some time that we could put on salvation that there is a sense when I can look back to 1983 and I can say, I was saved. And many of you could look back to a moment and say, I was saved at this time. I was saved on this date. This is when God filled me with His Spirit. Or this is when I was baptized. This is when I decided to follow Jesus. That we can look at those moments and go, I was saved. But there is also the reality that I am being saved. That it is a continual walk with Jesus. That that I haven't got to heaven yet. So from that salvation moment, I'm I'm on a journey and I'm walking toward Him. And He is at work in me and I am being saved. The reality is this, until I get to heaven, that's that third piece where I will be saved when I get there. That I'm still walking in this world and there is still the opportunity for me to turn my back on Jesus. And unless you think that doesn't happen, all you have to do is read the Bible. Read the book of Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews says that he who has put his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. You've tasted of the heavenly gift and then you turn your back on it and you decide, I don't like that anymore. He says, you're not even fit to be in the kingdom. It is more than conversion and it is an ongoing reality that our first encounter with Jesus must not be our last, but we should have a continual encounter with Jesus Christ. That over and over we are renewing our relationship with Him. And we are renewing the control of the Spirit in our lives. We are surrendering our lives every day to Jesus. As the music comes, what I would say to you is, and to me as well, I need a daily encounter with Jesus Christ. The parable of that Jesus told of the workers getting a penny a day. There may be a lot of applications you can make from that parable, but one of them would be this. You only get that penny for the day you work. You don't show up one day a week Say, man, I'm going to do a lot today, so I want all seven pennies. It's a daily walk with Jesus. Then if I don't work on my relationship with Jesus today, I can't really make it up tomorrow. Then if I don't work on my relationship with Jesus this week I don't get to come back next week and say boy I'm just going to pray twice as hard this week but it's a penny a day as we walk with him salvation begins with receiving the Holy Spirit It is validated by the supernatural. 
should result in unity. It is more than conversion. And it is an ongoing reality, not a one-time event. Would you stand with me today? Preaching this message today with, with two focuses. first is this that nothing else matters unless you have that born again conversion experience that is the beginning of your Christian life this illustration you go to the Royals game today out of the few fans that are there there will be a lot of people wearing jerseys official Royals baseball jerseys. Their favorite player's name on the back. Favorite player's number. Dressing like the team. Somewhat what looking part. They're not on the team. They're just a spectator in the stand. And I would tell you it's like that when it comes to the kingdom of God. You can do the things that people in the kingdom do. But what gets you in the kingdom being born again being born as Jesus said of water and of spirit anything else you can't see or enter the kingdom that's the only thing that'll get you in the kingdom that's the first thing if you haven't been born again if you haven't repented of your sins and committed your life to Jesus Christ if you haven't gone down in the waters of baptism haven't received the gift of the Holy Spirit evidence in speaking in other tongues you need to do that the second thing the second focus is this he said just because you have a conversion experience it doesn't stop there but we need to continue to walk with Jesus Christ. We need to continue to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So for many of you, you have experienced the new birth. 
my encouragement to you today is to give Jesus Christ everything you got. To give the kingdom everything you got. Paul went on three major missionary journeys. At the conclusion of his last missionary journey, he began, after being arrested, began the process of being transferred to Rome so that he could stand before the emperor. That's because as a Roman citizen, he had appealed to the emperor. And while waiting for an audience with the emperor, he writes some of his epistles. The last epistle that he would write was the second letter to Timothy. His final words, as he is exhorting Timothy, he's saying, I want you to come. Come and see me, Timothy. I'm in prison. Come and visit me. And he says this, I want you to come. Because basically nobody else is here. And he makes a brief little list of people. And he starts it with this. He says, for Demas... In love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That Demas left the faith because he loved the world. That Demas walked away because he loved this present world. John would write in his first epistle. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in Him. My challenge to you today is this. If you have not been born again, today is the day. What better day than Pentecost Sunday to experience the infilling of His Spirit? So you can do that today. But for those of you who have experienced that, I'm calling for a recommitment to walking with Jesus daily and a commitment to growing in the character of Jesus. Anybody want to be more like Jesus today? Anybody want Him to work in your life? As they begin to sing, I'm going to invite everyone in this room today. Nobody left out, nobody staying behind. Would you just come and make a declaration today if you want to serve Him and commit to Him, to growing in your relationship with Him? Would you gather around the front of this building as a sign of surrender, as a sign that you're going to serve Him and commit?